All right. Well, why don't you open your Bibles today to the book of Exodus chapter 3. And while you're going there, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read some things to you and uh, kind of set you up and uh, lay a foundation for where we're going to go today. I want to read uh, uh, some portions of scriptures from the New Testament to you. Acts 17 talks about Paul going into a, a synagogue in Thessalonica where he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And the, the interesting thing that I want, want to point out to you as I read that is that the Bible, the scriptures that they had to work with at that time, they did not have Old and New Testament in one volume like we've got. As a matter of fact, that was the time in which the New Testament was being written. So when, when you read in the book of Acts that, or that, that they were reasoning with them from the scriptures, they were reasoning with them from what we would call the Old Testament. And the thing that I want you to take notice of is that there was enough stuff said about Jesus in the Old Testament where they could take their text, take their, all their explanation out of the Old Testament scriptures and preach and convince people that the Old Testament scriptures declared that Christ would have to die and be raised from the dead. Very interesting. Acts chapter 18, verse 28, brings to light the, the idea of uh, a man named Apollos, who vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Over in John chapter 5, we see Jesus speaking, and he said uh, to uh, the, the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. In other words, these scriptures, they are talking about me. Interesting. Uh, in that same chapter, verse 45 to 46 of John 5 Jesus said to them, he said, uh, don't think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So Jesus very clearly, not just talking about the, the whole Old Testament, which would be true concerning the whole Old Testament, but pinpointing Moses, said, Moses wrote about me. And then Luke chapter 24, after the Jesus' resurrection from the dead, there was two men walking down the road to a town called Emmaus. And Jesus showed up and kind of joined himself to them and they did not recognize him. And in the course of conversation, Jesus, the scripture says, began at Moses and all the prophets and he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later on in that same chapter, Luke chapter 24, he said to his disciples, he said, this is what I was talking to you about when I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So with that foundation laid, what I want to get into today with you is seeing Jesus in the book of Exodus, seeing Jesus in the book of Exodus. Now, the great thing is that we can get into the whole Old Testament, but believe me, there, there's, there's so much in there. I mean, that, that's a long series. As a matter of fact, I already told the Lord, when I get to heaven, I want to hear the CD or watch the DVD of that conversation he had with those guys on the road to Emmaus that day. When he himself uh, elaborated on everything that the scripture said, about him. Oh my goodness, I want to hear those CDs, really. But, but what we're going to do today is we're going to get into the book of Exodus and see Jesus in the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus 3, take a look at verse 14. Uh, just to set you up, here, here's Moses, God speaking to Moses from the burning bush. And uh, Moses asking some questions of the Lord. One of those questions is going to be, well, when I go... Like you're telling me to go, who shall I say he sent me? And that's where we pick up verse 14. 
And it says, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And one of the first ways that we see Jesus in the book of Exodus is we see him as the great I am. Now, the way we see Jesus in such a light is the gospel of John. Uh, and, and it's interesting because out of the four gospels, it seems that everybody has their own particular theme or angle by which they're looking at the life of Christ. But one thing that John emphasized more than anybody else was the deity or the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't get those words, it's just real simple that Jesus was God. He starts off his gospel by saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And on the 14th verse of that first chapter, he said the word was made flesh. So if the word was made flesh and the word was God, what's he saying? He said God was made flesh and dwelt among us. Come on now. And, and, and so, so we see a, a, a theme of emphasis on the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus is God in the gospel of John. And then we see Jesus using uh, wording that would certainly link back to what we just read there in the book of Exodus. We see Jesus making a whole lot of what I call I am statements. We see Jesus in John 6, 35 saying, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, verse 9, he said, I am the door. Chapter 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, verse 1, he said, I am the true vine. So we see seven very clear I am statements made by the Lord Jesus Christ. And also in the gospel of John, you, you, you can't help but, but think about John chapter 8, where Jesus is uh, getting the, the religious leaders riled up when he makes a statement like this, that, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they thought, what? Abraham rejoiced to see your day? And they said, wait a minute, you're not even 50 yet. And you're going to tell us that you've seen Abraham? And Jesus' response was this. Before Abraham was, I am. And it got them so mad they picked up rocks to throw at them. But <laughs> yeah, religious people get mad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But, but Jesus was not hiding the fact in any way that he was the very same I am that spoke to Moses in that burning bush thousands of years earlier. Glory to God. Before Abraham was, I am. And then in the 18th chapter of John, we see Jesus over in the, uh, the garden of Gethsemane. And where the soldiers come in and Judas comes in leading the soldiers. And Jesus asks the question, who do you seek? Or in other words, who are you looking for? <laughs> and, and Jesus said, I am he. Of course, we read that in our scripture. But if you notice the word he is italicized, which means when you see something italicized in your Bible, it was something added in by the translators that they thought would help, make this, help the sentence make a little bit more sense to you. But it's not in the original of what was written. So literally, when Jesus asked a question, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. Does that sound familiar to you? Come on now. And what's interesting is when he made that statement, I am, those soldiers fell backward to the ground. Well, I got to tell you, <laughs> if I was the officer on the scene, if I was the popo, you know what I'm saying? And I showed up, and a man spoke two words, and it knocked me down to the ground. I would not proceed with the arrest. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I would say, sir, there's obviously been a mistake here. Because if two words are going to knock me down to the ground, I don't want to wait for you to speak a full sentence. You know what I'm saying? But, but, but what it does show is it shows that Jesus could have done something to stop his arrest. 
Because the scripture says in another place in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, don't you know that even right now I could call legions of angels on the scene? But did he do it? No. And boy, I'm glad he didn't do it. Because the fact that he went through with the plan means that we could stand here today saved and washed in the blood of the Lamb. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. So we do see Jesus, the great I am. How else do we see Jesus in the book of Exodus? We see him as the Passover lamb. Come on now. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's table today. and It's a very fitting thing for us to talk about. And as a matter of fact, one thing that I, uh, if you haven't caught on to now, uh, uh, we're, we're in a season where pastor has had it on his heart that when we have a communion service, that, that we work the message around the theme of the Lord's table somehow. And uh, uh, glory to God, uh, uh, just to see the the, the blessing uh, of the redemption that we have because of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, I tell you, get a hold of that, make you want to run and have a fit, I tell you. Mm -mm -mm. It gets you fired up because it's true, it's real. You see the reality of these things and, and it hits your spirit and you say, wow, boy, Jesus really loved me. Hallelujah. Go to Exodus 12, and we're going to take a look here at the Passover lamb. One of the first things that we notice about this lamb is that this lamb was to be spotless. Exodus 12, verse 5, right at the beginning, it said, uh, as uh, Exodus 12 being the, one of the main chapters where, where, where God lays out the, the, the Passover and the instructions concerning the Passover to the people of Israel. He said, your lamb shall be without blemish and it's interesting that uh, as you consider that you think about Peter over in first Peter chapter 1 verse 18 and 19 where he said that we weren't redeemed with corruptible things but with incorruptible things we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ and he refers to Christ as a lamb without blemish and spot hallelujah a lamb without blemish and without spot sounds familiar doesn't it and we see John the Baptist baptizing Jesus in the River Jordan. And, and, and what did he say about Jesus at that moment? This was his way of introducing Jesus. People didn't know Jesus yet. Jesus showed up to get baptized by John the Baptist. They did not hear about Jesus yet. They heard about John. John was out there preaching for some time. And here shows up Jesus. And how does John introduce him? There in the Jordan River, he calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. An interesting thing. Where did that introduction take place? It took place in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. Right, right at that spot. Now, now, why is that geography of any kind of significance? Well, let me tell you, the, the reason that geography is significant is because it was the Jordan River where the people of Israel passed over from one side to get to the promised land. Now, an interesting thing, there's things, you see, this is the beauty of it. There's things that you can read in your Bible that you just blow right through and not even notice. And here's one of them. That, that in the book of Joshua, where, where it, it, it tells the story of the Israelites crossing over the Jordan River, and I believe no coincidence, not that chapters and verses are, you know, ordained by God or anything, but it's no coincidence to me that this verse we're talking about in Joshua happens to be chapter 3, verse 16, which gives us a nice little picture of another 316 you might know about. Someone said John 316. Come on now. And in Joshua 3.16, it, it talks about the, the waters parting so that Israel can get on through. And it said that on one side, the, the, the waters went back to a city called the city of Adam. Anybody know who Adam is? Yeah. And then on the other side, the waters flowed into what was called the Salt Sea, better known by us as the Dead Sea. So there was dry land all the way from the city of Adam down to the Dead Sea. And that was the very same place where Jesus was baptized and declared to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Well, can you see a picture of something here? That the Lamb of God who stood there dealt with sin and the sin mess all the way back to Adam and took the sin mess and just plunged it right into the sea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can you see that now? Can you see the fact that it was actually, even the way the waters parted was a picture of what the Lord Jesus would do. Dealing with the mess of mankind going back to Adam and plunging it all into the sea. And it, it fits so beautifully with what the prophet Micah said in chapter 7, 19, where he said, he'll again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities and that you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Come on, somebody. That's what the Lamb of God, the real Passover Lamb, has done for us. We also see this. Considering the, the Passover lamb, we see that the Passover feast was a memorial feast. Look at verse 14. It says, so this day shall, shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. So God said, you should keep this feast. This should be a continual memorial of something, of what happened and what happened. That was the night that they were leaving Egypt behind, leaving bondage behind, leaving slavery behind, and going on into their new life with God. Well, do we have a meal, a memorial feast that celebrates the fact that we're leaving our bondage behind, that we're no longer slaves to Satan and slaves to sin, but we've been made free is there some kind of meal that we have that is a memorial of such a thing? Yeah, I think so. I remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. We got a memorial feast too. Come on. He took the cup, said, this is the New Testament in my blood. And as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11. Hallelujah. Yeah, just like the Passover was a memorial feast, we got a memorial feast that we're going to celebrate today called the Lord's Table. The ultimate fulfillment that the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb. You see, you've got Fulfillment, and you've got things in the Old Testament that point to the fulfillment. You see what I'm saying? And that's the beauty of understanding the Old Testament. Here's the thing. When you read the Old Testament like it's about Jesus, which that's why I wanted to read those scriptures to you in the beginning and lay that foundation. When you read the Old Testament like it's written about Jesus, you see it in a whole different light. You see stuff that you didn't see before. And you say, what? I mean, it just jumps off the page at you. It's an amazing thing. Jesus said, these are they which testify of me. He said, Moses? Oh, yeah, I know Moses. He wrote about me. Yeah, come on now. Hallelujah. So we see regarding this Passover lamb, he's spotless. We see that this Passover feast is a memorial feast. And we're celebrating a memorial feast here today in the Lord's table. We also see this about the lamb, uh, the Passover lamb, that he must not have his bones broken. Right there in chapter uh, 12, verse 46, right towards the end of the verse, it says, nor shall you break one of its bones. Very specific instructions regarding the Passover lamb. And you remember when Jesus was on the cross and he was in the middle and had a thief crucified on his right and on his left. And the soldiers came to the thief on the right, broke his legs, came to the thief on the left and broke his legs. But when they got to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And that was the point where the soldier took the spear and pierced his side and blood and water flowed out. But isn't it interesting that right after that, this is the scripture says, and that's over in John 19, look between verse 32 and verse 36. And, and it said, these things were done that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Do you see Jesus in Exodus today? Come on. And right there in chapter 12 of Exodus, let's look at another thing. We, we see that the lamb was spotless. We see that the Passover feast was a memorial feast, that the, the lamb must not have his bones broken. We see that fulfilled as Jesus died on the cross. But then we see the lamb's blood 
being applied to the door. The lamb's blood being applied to the door. Verse 22 of Exodus 12, it says, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin. That's the blood of the lamb. And strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood. The lintel is the the top part of the door and the sides of the door. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Hallelujah. One uh, thing I'd like you to write down, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 talks about Christ, our Passover. The Amplified Bible literally says Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So ultimately, the fulfillment of this is in the Lord Jesus Christ, because Christ is our Passover lamb. So what's the fulfillment in Jesus that we can see? Well, we can realize this. First of all, that when the blood is applied to the, uh, where is the blood applied? It's applied to the entrance. Which means when the blood's applied to the entrance, the blood's going to have some say-so. Some say-so on what's going in and on what's not going in. We see the way it was written here in Exodus 12, that their blood had say-so on what was not coming in. Destroyer was not coming in. Destroyer was not coming in and messing with the house because there was blood on the door. Come on. The blood of the lamb was on the door. And in the same way that the, the, the curse can be disallowed by the presence of blood on your entrance. At the same time that there's a disallowment of the curse, there's also the allowance of the blessing. See, the blood on the door says, blessing, come on in. The presence of the blood on the door said, curse, you can't come in here. But it does say blessings come on in. How do you know that? Well, I want you to know that the scripture says in Galatians 3, 13, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. As it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus redeemed us with his blood. So we got that, right? We know Jesus redeemed us by his blood. And Jesus, with his blood, redeemed us from the curse. So that means Jesus, and with his blood, redeeming us from the curse, has put us in a position where curse is not allowed to function. Curse is not allowed entrance into our place, into our, in, into our being, into our spirit, into our heart, into our mind, into our body, into our physical house. Wherever you apply the blood, it'll work, believe me. Hallelujah. And so if the curse was disallowed, what was allowed to come in? Well, Paul didn't stop there in verse 13 of Galatians 3, where he talks about Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law. He goes on and talks about something in verse 14. He says that the blessing of Abraham may come on the Gentiles by Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. So I want you to realize this, that that by the blood of Jesus being on your doorpost, Mm-hmm. that the curse is disallowed from entering. But the blessing is allowed to enter. And it is no coincidence that the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10 concerning the cup we'll be drinking today. It calls it the cup of blessing. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. Glory to God. So the lamb's blood can be applied to the entrance. Where's your entrances at? Don't you know that you can go ahead and apply the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to wherever things could possibly enter in? To your heart, to your mind, to your physical body, to your house, to your possessions, to your children. Glory to God. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. Glory be to God. Thank you, Jesus. And I want you to know that the blood is powerful and the blood on the door speaks. Yeah, you know the blood speaks. You know the scripture teaches that. You know, Abel's blood was shed 
And God said, the voice, God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. But then you go over to the book of Hebrews and you see that the blood of Jesus speaks better things than Abel's blood did. Come on. So when that blood's on the door, it's saying something. It's saying, welcome to blessings. It's saying, welcome to God's will for your life and God's good things in your life. But anything that has to do with the enemy and anything that has to do with the destroyer, you know what the blood says? No, you got the wrong house. Come on now. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, let's go to Exodus 16. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, hallelujah. Exodus 16. We see Jesus, the great I am. We see Jesus, the Passover lamb, but we also see Jesus, the bread. Exodus 16, verse 4, right in the beginning there, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And that obviously talking about manna, that he would rain from heaven to feed the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness. Well, what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, let me tell you something about John chapter 6, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Come on, recognize that Jesus is the bread that fell from heaven. Except those people in the wilderness, the bread that they ate, it, it sustained them during that time, but it did not sustain them further. But I want you to know that the bread, the real bread that comes from heaven. Yeah, I tell you, first of all, yes, that will sustain you in the wilderness. Have you ever been in a hard time, in a, in a, in a tough time where it seems like things are rough and the world's closing in on you and you got, uh, uh, you, you know, you're just fighting a, fighting a battle. It seems like every day is a battle. A time of being in the wilderness. But I want you to know that the bread from heaven can sustain you even in the wilderness. And then besides that, this bread from heaven will cause you to have eternal life. And the idea of eternal life, we automatically think of our spirit living forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's true. But if that's all there is to eternal life, then sinners have that too. Because they're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever, but in a very different place than the saints are. So I want to submit to you today that eternal life has more to do than just your spirit living forever and ever and ever and ever. But eternal life also has to do not just with the quantity of life, but with the quality of life. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have life more abundantly. Hallelujah. That's what the bread of heaven will give to you. Glory be to God. Uh-huh. Go to Exodus 17. We're in 16. Go to 17. We're going to keep on seeing Jesus in the book of Exodus. Hallelujah. Chapter 17, verse 6. First of all, we saw Jesus as the great I am. We saw him as the Passover lamb. We saw him as the bread. And now we see him as the rock. Verse 6 of Exodus 17. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Hallelujah. Now, keep this in mind. The Paul speaking, 1 Corinthians 10, talking about the fathers who went through the wilderness with Moses, said uh, in chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, that they all ate the same spirit, spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Can you see Jesus in Exodus, somebody? That rock was Christ, which is interesting. The rock was struck. And I want you to know Jesus was struck. 
Jesus was struck with the full wrath of God that should have come upon us and it went on him instead. Jesus was struck because the blow that should have come on us went on him instead. The rock was struck. But then what do you see next? You see water flowing out of the rock. Which is interesting because if perfectly fits the timeline of what we see in the Gospels and the New Testament. We see this, that, that Jesus the rock was struck. He was smitten. And then as a result of him being smitten, resurrected from the dead and glorified, what happened next? Then water came out of the rock because the Holy Ghost came. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Christ is the rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand and all other ground is sinking sand. Hallelujah. How else do we see Jesus? Well, why don't you go to Exodus 15 now? Yeah. We see the great I am, the Passover lamb, the bread and the rock. But now we're going to tell you the story about a tree. Come on now. Exodus chapter 15. Let me tell you the story of a tree. Verse 22 of Exodus 15, it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it, it being the tree, into the waters, the waters were made sweet. So here is water that is just nasty and undrinkable. And you think with your natural mind, well, if I put a tree in there, what's going to happen? You're going to have nasty, undrinkable water with a tree in it. What else is going to change? But, But what is God looking to get across here? That if you took the tree and put the tree in the water, that what was bitter was sweet. What, what was undrinkable is now refreshing. How can that happen? What does it all mean? Well, let me tell you, there, there's a, another tree talked about in Scripture. Galatians chapter 3 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Come on, somebody. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 says that he in his own body bear our sins on the tree. You got something that's bitter and nasty and don't taste right in your life? Time to introduce the tree to that situation. When you introduce the tree to that situation, you can take what was bitter and make it sweet. Come on, somebody. You can take what was undrinkable and useless to you, and it can become refreshing. Isn't it amazing? God's absolute ability, and I don't know how he does it as well as he does it, to take things that taste bad and make it end up tasting good. I call it God's ability to take lemons and make lemonade. (laughs) Hallelujah. He can take what's bitter and make it sweet. How does that happen? It happens because there was a tree with a spotless lamb who died on that tree. Does anybody in the house believe that today? Anybody in the house today got something that's bitter? Got something in life that doesn't taste good? Oh, yeah. Get the tree involved. Get the tree involved. Get the tree involved. And what was bitter will be made sweet. Mm -mm -mm. Well, are you ready? Go to Exodus 7. He's the great I am, he's the Passover lamb, he's the bread, he's the rock, and he hung on a tree. And now we're going to take it one more step. We're going to talk about the rod that became a serpent. The rod that became a serpent. Exodus chapter 7. I, I ain't had my first sip yet. I'm so excited about this, I forgot about drinking. 
Thank you, Lord. Exodus chapter 7. Now, what's happening here is you see the Lord speaking to Moses, preparing him for him and Aaron standing before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. All right? Exodus 7, verse 9. When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, show a miracle for yourselves. In other words, you say God sent you here, show a sign. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Oh my. Now, First of all, let me declare to you from the words of the prophet Isaiah in his book, chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, he refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the rod who's coming from the stem of Jesse. Someone say, Jesus is the rod. So that's Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, a clear reference to the coming Messiah. Because if, if the rod's coming from the stem of Jesse, we'll figure it out. Who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. And the, the Old Testament is very clear that the, the, the Messiah was coming through the line, through the lineage of David. You read your Old Testament and you see Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Why do you see something like that? Because there was something very significant about Jesus being the son of David. The son of David was the one who was going to come and deliver and save and set free. So we see here the reference to Jesse, even, even further solidifying the fact that this rod from the stem of Jesse is None other but the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know Jesus is the rod. Now, now what's up with this serpent thing? We can imagine Jesus as a rod. But eh, say, Pastor Ray, it's tough to imagine Jesus being typified as a serpent. I mean, we just read about Jesus being the spotless lamb. And now you're going to talk about Jesus as a serpent? What's up with that? Well, hang on for a minute. You know, in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, you can see this between verse 6 and 9. See, the the people got to complaining. The people of Israel were complaining, as they very often did, and got themselves in trouble. They brought a plague into the camp. Fiery serpents came into the camp and bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died, the scripture says. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord, and we've spoken against you. Pray to the Lord that he'll take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed. And then the Lord gave him instructions. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it'll be that everyone, when they're bitten, when they look at it, they will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it up on a pole. And so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. By the way, anybody been behind an ambulance lately? If you've ever paid attention, you will see a serpent wrapped around a pole. You know where that came from? You'll never guess. (laughs) So we see Numbers 21 talking about this instance of this serpent on the pole and that if the people of Israel were to, even though they might be dying and they were snake bit, but if you look, you'll live. 
Now, what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, let me connect a dot for you. See, we've heard many of us could quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. However, there is a verse just a little bit before that that is very, very telling, where Jesus said in John 3, verse 14, that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Wow. Jesus himself likening himself to the serpent on the pole. How could it be? How could it be? Let's check it out. The rod became a serpent. We saw that in Exodus. We know Jesus is the rod. Was there a point where Jesus, the rod, became a serpent? Of course, we're talking figuratively speaking, not, not, not a turning literally into a snake. Interesting. Galatians 3.13, we quoted earlier, says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Wow, that's some strong language. He became a curse for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, talking about the Father, made him, talking about Jesus the Son, who knew no sin. Remember, he was the spotless lamb, right? So he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let there be no doubt about it. The rod did become a serpent. It's interesting. The rod that became a serpent back in Exodus swallowed up all the other serpents. And in what we just quoted to you, Galatians 3, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And how did he do it? By being made a curse for us. Wow. That the way to our deliverance from the serpent, you know, there's a story of another serpent, you know, the serpent that got this mess going to begin with. And that by Jesus the rod who became a serpent and then swallowed up the other serpents. You know what he was doing? He was swallowing up. He was destroying and exercising dominion and winning victory over the serpent back in the garden who messed this thing up for us to begin with. Glory to God. He became a curse so that he could redeem us from the curse. Genesis 3. The prophetic words of God Almighty when he talked about the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. Come on now. Now, the seed of the woman is a very enlightening thing to begin with because if you know a little birds and bees, you know, seed is a man thing, not a woman thing. So when the Bible talking about the seed of a woman, it's obviously talking about something that happened a little differently. Something called the virgin birth. Come on now. Where you have a woman with a seed growing inside of her without the benefit of a man having placed the seed inside of her. Do I need to draw a picture? I think you get it. A supernatural birth. A virgin birth. And it was that one who was born of a virgin who would be the one to bruise the head of the serpent. And who would ever think that by 
in, in essence, becoming a serpent that he would ultimately defeat the serpent. Who would ever think about that? But that's the genius of God at work, that the rod became a serpent so that he could swallow up the serpent and deal with the one who messed up the human race, deal with the one who wants to go ahead and destroy your life, destroy the life of your children, destroy the life of your family, your loved ones. What wants to cause cause a, a, a d- destruction of every kind in your life? The serpent's been swallowed up. And it was Jesus, the one born of a virgin, who bruised the head of the serpent. He dealt with the serpent. Don't you know that Colossians 2.15 says Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. So we know that the rod became a serpent so that the, the real serpent could get dealt with once and for all. But then the rod that became a serpent did not remain as a serpent, but became a rod again. And you see, if you continue reading in Exodus 7, verse 15, towards the end, it says, The rod which was turned to a serpent shall you take in your hand. The rod which was turned to a serpent shall you take in your hand. So, so this is not a serpent anymore. This is back to being a rod again. Well, don't you realize that Jesus, after he was humbled and, and, and after he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, the ultimate of humiliation. And then what happened? Then God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. So the, the, the rod who became a serpent did not stay a serpent, but is now a rod once again. Hallelujah. The father did not leave Jesus in a state of humiliation, but restored him once again to glory. First Timothy 3.16 says that Jesus was justified in the spirit. Well, you think, how can you be justified when you haven't done anything wrong? But the real truth of the matter is that though Jesus had not done anything wrong, we did. And we were in him. And Jesus fully took the penalty that was due to us for our sins. The, the, the time we should have done for the crimes that we did, he had no crimes, but he did the time and was justified, declared just in the spirit, declared just, which means, yeah, For a moment, he became a serpent, but that's not due to anything of his own. That's not due to anything of his own doing because he himself is spotless. He became a serpent to to, to destroy the serpent, you know, the one in the Garden of Eden, and to set us free who were bound up with the serpent. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Acts chapter 2, verse 31, fulfills... uh, Uh, Peter is speaking and talks about the prophecy that David said in the Psalms being fulfilled. That the soul of Jesus was not abandoned in hell. Hallelujah. Ephesians 4 says that that he he who descended into the lower parts of the earth is the same who ascended far above all heavens. Jesus' own words in Revelation 118. He said, I am he who was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and hell. The father did not leave him in that state of humiliation, but restored him once again to glory. Why would he? allow himself to be subjected to such a state. He's pure, he's spotless, he's innocent. Why be looked at and typified in scripture as a serpent? Especially when we know what the serpent did. We know it was the serpent who got the mess started to begin with. Why would he have to become a serpent to swallow up the serpent? Well, it's interesting, the book of Hebrews words it beautifully when he said that Jesus threw death destroyed him 
who had the power of death. That is the devil. That's as good to me as taking someone's gun and shooting them with their own gun. Come on now. The very weapon that he was using, the very weapon that the enemy was using to destroy the human race and hold the human race in captive and hold them in bondage. He said, I'm going to take your weapon out of your own holster and I'm going to use it on you. And the very thing you were using to make an end of others, the very thing that you thought you were going to use on others to go ahead and keep them in misery and keep them in bondage and make an end of them, I'm going to take that and make an end of you with the very same weapon. Through death, he destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. By, be, by the rod becoming a serpent, the serpent's time of reign has come to an end. And I want you to know it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. The lease is about to run out and he will reign. He, Jesus, will reign forever and ever. Time is running out. Time is running out. Glory to God. And Jesus is coming back in the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign for Oh, come on now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that's just a little bit of what you see by seeing Jesus in Exodus. Somebody get your praise on today. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hey. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we honor you in this house today and give you glory. We thank you, Lord, for the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this meal that we celebrate today. My God, we give you glory. My God, we give you glory. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Oh, yeah. That everybody under the sound of my voice, thank you, Lord. Those that, that don't know you, they're going to know you today. Those that have gotten off track are getting back on track. And they're going to experience the blessing and the fullness of their redemption in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah.